Pasta very much has a mentality of just working together for a shared goal of protecting and saving primates. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, hello. Hi there. Welcome back to the podcast that I had to rush to finish and get to editing because I stayed up most of the night watching movies. The Rossafari Podcast. That's right, y'all. I don't know if any of you know this, but I am just a huge fan of the Marvel movies. Growing up, I was uh, really into the Marvel comic books, and the movies just bring me such joy and just take me back to my childhood. But um, I will say this. It is a really bad idea when you are busy to think to yourself, oh, I'll just casually start one of these movies and then turn it off when I want to start working. It's especially a really bad idea when you do that at the start of Infinity War, which, if you don't know, is the first of two movies that are kind of go together and each one's really long. So that's a thing I did, and it's now 3.40 in the morning, and I was like, well, I should probably finish editing this episode and uh, then go back to watching the movie, because that's just what I'm going to do today. So uh, I like I like Marvel movies, y'all. I'm a big, big nerd. But yeah, so that's what I chose to do, and uh, I'm probably rambling right now because I'm tired. Weird, right? But seriously, all silliness aside, I am so excited to bring you today's episode. I've now had two keepers on, Tiffany James and Melissa Patterson, who you just heard on Tuesday's episode, uh, who were both really, really excited about a conservation organization known as PASA, which stands for the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance. And, uh, of course, I, I asked Melissa specifically to help me get in touch with PASA because their mission seems just so amazing. And she did. And now I am bringing that group to you through their African operations manager, Caitlin Bach. Now, y'all, I know I say this a lot, but Caitlin is so freaking cool. Y'all are going to love her and this interview. Caitlin's journey to PASA is really, really cool. It involves a ton of international travel, a ton of volunteer work, a ton of unique opportunities. Just, ah, I just love it. I, I loved it so much. I don't even think we start talking about PASA until about 30 minutes into this episode. But when we do, it is really rewarding because PASA is an awesome organization. All right, so I'm going to leave you guys in the capable hands of Caitlin, and I'm going to go back to watching my movies because, hey, maybe this time the Avengers won't beat Thanos? You never know, right? Uh, so without further ado, here is my interview with Caitlin Bach of the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance. All right, so tell me who you are, where you work, and what you do there. 
Okay, so my name is Caitlin Bach, and I'm the Africa Operations Manager for the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, which is PASA. Uh, my role there is pretty diverse. It changes a lot, but and it's hard to sort of summarize everything that I do. But um, broadly, I manage all of our operations and all of like the things that happen in Africa. So we represent um, 23 different primate sanctuaries across 13 countries in Africa. Um, my primary role is sort of as a go-between between our sanctuaries in Africa and our office in the U.S. Um, I manage all of our PASA programs that happen there. I also organize our conferences. We run a, it's called a strategic development conference. It sounds kind of boring, but it's actually really cool. <laughs> but we have an annual conference that we run in Africa every year. We have trainings and workshops. So I organize those and put them together. Um, I also do random sort of HR things for the organization. I do some of our hiring and or work with staff to hire um, more staff. Um, also volunteer recruitment and volunteer management. And I handle some inquiries from the public. Um, yeah, just kind of a pretty diverse range of activities. All right. That's cool. That's cool. And so you said that even though you're, you're coordinating things in Africa, you're in the U.S., right? That's right. Yeah. So I work here in the U.S. and I was living. So our main office is in Portland, Oregon, and I was living there for the last three years, but I just relocated to Florida. So kind of like everyone else, we're working remotely right now. Um, but it's not too different because all of our work is remote anyway, because everything happens in Africa anyway. So yeah, so I'm just working from home um, here in Florida. And yeah, we've got a little bit of a you know time difference thing that we deal with because all of the stuff that's happening, um, you know, it'll happen while we're sleeping, then we wake up and respond um, and vice versa. But yeah, I'm here in the U.S. and then I go to Africa. Well, it depends, you know, obviously during COVID, we're not traveling. Sure, sure. Usually I would go um, like once a year, twice a year uh, to different places, depending on where we have our conferences and workshops. Very cool. That's, uh, That's a nice little perk to the job. It, yeah, it is. You know, I always like wanted to work in like international wildlife conservation. I always wanted to. And it was tough, too, because like when you work in the field and then you work maybe in an office in the U.S. And it's hard to figure out how to get the best of both worlds. And I was always a bit torn on that and where I could find my place. But in the role that I have now and with PASA, I feel like I do in many ways have the best of both worlds, although I do miss the kind of everyday interactions that you have with the animals. So. I bet. I bet. So, all right, well, let's, let's go back in time and let's talk about you for a little bit. Um, you get to be the first primate featured on this episode. So, uh, oh. yes, exciting, right? <laughs> yes, that is exciting. So, so tell me about yourself. What made you want to get into this line of work? Okay. Wow. Uh, well, when I was, I have like always been crazy about animals. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I've just, I think that's how it is for a lot of us. It's like we get the bug really early or we're just born with it, you know. I was just so obsessed with animals growing up and I just never grew out of it, you know. I I got older and I always wanted to, it just wasn't clear to me when I was younger how that would manifest and how I would navigate that. You know, when I was really little, I thought, oh, I'll be a vet, you know, I think I want to be a veterinarian. I but think then, half the people that I have had on my podcast say that sentence. 
I, I, well, most people like, love animals and don't know anything you can do with animals other than be a vet. And so, yeah, that's exactly. just how it goes. Totally. Yeah, I think that's how it is for a lot of us. We're like, all right, so we'll be a vet, you know. But then <laughs> when I... And then you're just like you're then you're a teenager and you're just trying to figure out like okay how am I how is this going to be a job how am I going to make do with this so I started getting like little volunteer things little internships at different organizations um, I, I I was in Belize for a few months volunteering with an organization called Wild Tracks which is a really cool organization and this is still when into. you were like in high school and stuff. I started kind of young. I was clearly I was really into traveling when I was very young. So I, I started, I got my first internship when I was actually 15. Oh, wow. And then um, that was actually at an art museum, not, not um, an animal related. Okay. But I, I, after that, I followed up. I got an internship when I was also f- 15, the second one, um, at <laughs> a nature preserve. And I started interning at the nature preserve. And I would take care of the little education center animals. You know, they had like a red rat snake and they had little like green animals. You know, I was like getting crickets <laughs> for them and starting out. You were way. like, I'm a zookeeper. And, yay. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I can do this. So, yeah. so totally a zookeeper. Yeah. So I started that and I was so hooked though. I just loved being like at the nature preserve all day. I liked being around the people that worked in it. So I knew at that point, I think, but from about 16, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, um, this is the field I want to work in. And so once I got into college, I started just kind of orienting my life around that. You know, I went to, um, I, I had my first internship at Center for Great Apes. Um, Oh, actually, sorry. I should say before that, I had an externship at a clinic for the rehabilitation of wildlife, which is a wildlife clinic here in Florida. So I started taking care of Florida wildlife, did that for like a couple months. And then I had an internship at Center for Great Apes, and that ended up being a major turning point for me. So I, it's kind of like, (laughs) you know, when they say like, when you meet someone, when you know, you know, Right, right. I had that experience yeah, I very much had that experience with um, with the apes and primates. So I was at Center for Great Apes, and I walked in, and I saw this big male orangutan. His name was Sammy. And he was, like, displaying, and he was swinging on these ropes from his enclosure. And I was like, okay, stick a fork in me. I'm done. <laughs> this is <laughs> – I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm home, you know. So I – once I was – so at Center for Great Apes, I was just doing, like, you know, when you're an intern – at these places, you're kind of just helping out with the daily care. And after that, I knew that I wanted to work with orangutans and I wanted to go where they were and where they lived. So once I graduated and did a little bit of traveling on my own, I started looking into how I could get to Indonesia. <laughs> and I found um, Orangutan Foundation International, which is um, runs a sanctuary in uh, Borneo. And it's also run by Brute Galdicus, who's the legendary primatologist, um, orangutan primatologist. So I applied for their long-term volunteer program. I It took me almost five years to apply for that program because I was so obsessed with it. <laughs> and I was so stressed about the idea of not getting it. <laughs> and I was like, that's all I want. Like, that's the only thing I want to do. 
is go to Indonesia and be with the orangutans. And again, it's still, it's so floaty. Like I didn't really know what that looked like or what that meant. Was I just going to be like a keeper? Was I going to work in enrichment? You know, I was just so crazy about it. And uh, yeah, I got accepted uh, to the program. And I should say too, before this, I had a little internship at uh, Cleveland Amory Black Beauty Ranch in Texas and I got some experience doing communications there. They wanted me to like write up some stuff. What kind of so stuff were you I, working with there? Uh, yeah, Black Beauty. Oh man, Black Beauty is amazing. There, it's one of the most. It's one of the largest, or it is the largest, most diverse animal sanctuary in the U.S. Um, I was working with horses and donkeys there. I was the equine intern, and they've got like. 500 horses and donkeys, you know, you're out with the animals all day long. You're surrounded by animals. It's like paradise. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really happy there and I did help with some communication stuff. They had me write some bios up, uh, for social media, I think. And for some like adoption, you know, they have like virtual adoption programs, I think. And I was writing bios about the animals. Um, it came really naturally to me like just writing these stories and, you know, speaking to members of the public about the animals there. So once I had that experience and then I got this opportunity at Orangutan Foundation International, they were really interested in some of my writing and some of the communications work I'd done. So they asked me to, when I went to Borneo, they asked me to do communications work instead of enrichment, which I thought, you know, I, that's what I would go there for. Right. Right. So yeah, the admin part of the job kind of pulled at me. I didn't really seek it out. It it sort of found me. And at first, to be honest, I thought it was really lame. Like I thought, oh man, like who wants to like be on the computer all day and writing about the animals? Like I want to be with them. You know, I want to do the enrichment. I want to do the daily care. But um, truthfully, I think this is where my, you know, that was where my skills were better suited anyway. So um, yeah, so I moved to Borneo. I moved to Indonesia and started doing communications uh, with OFI. Uh, this is a really long No, story, no, no. Sorry. And we're going to make it longer because it's a really intriguing story. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut in here. So you moved to Borneo. How long were you in Borneo? Yeah, I was in Borneo for almost a year. Um, Tell I, me all the things. What was that like? <laughs> it was the most life-changing experience it's it was the craziest thing that's ever happened to me truthfully was, i mean yes you moved to borneo i feel like that would be the craziest thing to happen to most people <laughs> <laughs> it was and i had worked i had worked abroad before i'd worked internationally a little bit before i did a project in peru in the amazon i had worked in belize but my experience in indonesia was like completely different in a lot of I mean, it ultimately in a really good way, but there were so many hard things that I dealt with over there that I was so sheltered from before. Such as? And I, oh my gosh. Well, one of the big ones is that, you know, I, here in the US, like I just hadn't witnessed that much animal cruelty because a lot, you know, you're very protected from that when you're here in the States. Um, in Indonesia, it's not like that as much, you know, you, you, it, you're more likely to run into instances of animal cruelty if it's like at a market or, people, you know, on a motorbike with live chickens hanging off their bike. And, you know, you're just exposed to a lot more. Plus you're, you know, I was working with orangutans and these are basically 
I mean, they're orphans. They are, you know, refugees in a way to like an environmental war. They are, they've experienced so much. And when they come to the sanctuaries, they're very shook up and, you know, sometimes injured or malnourished or, you know, sometimes they die really soon after arriving, you know, so it was very dark and heavy and more than I, I was, I had ever experienced before. I didn't know really what it was going to be like. And yeah. And plus the other thing too, is that Indonesia is very different from the U S I mean, just culturally, it's really, it's, you know, <laughs> it's really different, the, you know, so the language barrier was huge. You know, all the people around me spoke, hardly anyone spoke English. They mostly spoke Indonesian or Dayak, which is like the local language there. So there was a massive language barrier and there were all of these big pressing issues I'd never been around. And then I was there with the orangutans and they're just the most amazing beings ever. So (laughs) I was also just, you know, experiencing them for the first time and seeing what they were really like and getting my first taste of, of, of how, um, how important and how hard uh, conservation and or animal welfare, international animal welfare could really be, you know. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, talk to me more, you know, I, I love getting boots on the ground stories. So talk to me more about as you were there in, in Borneo, um, like what was your daily life like? You know, especially with the language barrier. Did you get to make friends? Did you just go a year hiding in your room where your best friends were the orangutans? Uh, you know, what what happened? Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I guess a bit of both, you know. <laughs> well, when you're at the sanctuary, you are a little bit um, bit isolated. I mean, we're not – that the, the care center there is not too far from the city, but you're still just so so encompassed in your day-to-day life that you're – not really going out too much. So yeah, I was very much in the world of the orangutans. Um, you're because it's immersive, that language experience is immersive. So you do pick up the language pretty quickly. I was never someone who was super talented or gifted with languages, but it came to me fairly fast, much faster than, you know, taking Spanish or French in high school, you know? So, uh, the language picked up, I was spending about half my day, in the field with them, and then the other half of the day writing or just editing photos. It was my job to basically take pictures of everything, write everything down, um, and report it back to the head office in LA and also some of our sister organizations in Germany and in Australia. So I was like a, yeah, communications coordinator in a way. And I was... When I would go out with the orangutans, you know, they'd take the babies out. Well, they take, you know, all the ages, but they take the babies out um, every day. And I would go with the staff when they go into the woods to take the babies out or they could play in the forest all day. Sometimes I'd go out with the bigger orangutans um, and they've got staff taking, yeah, (laughs) the bigger, you know, they've got male staff taking the bigger orangutans out to the forest. So it's an adventure. <laughs> so then, I mean, or in in you know, AZA American zoos, orangutans are protected contact. Are you saying yeah. this was literally like free contact? Like you were going out and hanging out with them in the the, the forest directly? Uh, yeah. I mean, the big ones they don't really. You don't. I mean, they need their time out 
in in the I'm not these aren't full grown by the way. These are still adolescent. Irrelevant. This is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Come on. That's amazing. <laughs> With, yeah, I mean, it's. I will say that it's it's all the staff basically. So I was the only sort of um, like Westerner there. But yeah, the staff are going out with the orangutans into the forest. That's right. They are That's um, in so contact cool. with them. Ah. Yeah, and uh, but as they get bigger, they don't really, um, you know, they kind of do their own thing. <laughs> you know, by the time they're sort of adolescents and getting older, you know, nine years old, ten years old, they're they go out in the trees. They don't really hang out with the, um, the, the caregivers. So it's, but the babies can be kind of full on, you know, they're kind of just like human babies, you know? Um, and the, yeah, I was just basically there to bear witness to it all, take pictures of them. I need to, I needed to get to know their personalities too, which was a really cool part of the job was really paying attention to the individuals and seeing like what types of, what, what they were really like and, you know, which, you know, which other orangutans they were drawn to, what were the friendships like? So I was getting really granular, really detailed with all these different individuals. The crazy thing too, was like, you'd be surrounded by, you know, a hundred orangutans and, you know, pretty quickly, you can tell them all apart. You, you know, all their personalities, you know, they just really come to life once you're surrounded by them all. Well, that's amazing. That is, that's one of the, I talked to a lot of really cool people on this podcast and that is one of the coolest stories I have heard. That's, that's really incredible. Um, so it was the end of, of your year in Borneo and, and what did Caitlin Bach do next? Oh yeah. Well, I should also say that I got, when I was there too, I got involved with, um, Sunbear Outreach, which is, um, another small organization that helps sun bears in Indonesia. So, I was helping uh, Sunbear Outreach. Sunbears are so cool. Yeah, Sunbears are amazing. I, I did get a chance to be around some Sunbears when I was in Indonesia. Um, and I quickly developed a healthy fear of bears. Fair, fair. I realized. <laughs> Before that, I had no idea. Uh, now I'm I'm like, no, bears are actually genuinely scary. I love them, but yeah, I give them the space that they deserve. They're very dexterous. They're very fast. Um, they're very easily spooked. <laughs> so yeah, I learned that all in the field. So I was helping. Th this makes sense to me. This is, this is a problem that I have in my life too. Um, I have no problem when an opportunity has presented itself, petting a lion on the face, letting an elephant wrap its trunk around my arm, dumb stuff that can get me killed. And I just... It's so dumb. I am way too intelligent to do it. And yet, every time the opportunity presents, I let it happen. And I'm probably going to be killed by an animal. And <laughs> if I don't get better at this. But um, yeah, no, I, I that is a problem that I have where I feel like I need to have a moment where I get to actually... like. I do logically respect that, you know, wild animals, bears, scary, fearful, you know, they're, they're big. They can kill you. I don't doubt that for a second. Would I hug one if the opportunity presented? Probably. And I'm not like saying that's a good thing. I'm not making a dumb joke. It would be my death. I'm sure of it. And yet I'm not entirely sure that I would stop myself. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's tempting. It's tempting for sure. <laughs> I had some close encounters when I've, been in the field too. Like I said, you know, you're, you know, when we go out into the forest, you, they'd be with the babies and, you know, you feel sort of okay around the babies. They're doing their thing. 
The adults, though, uh-uh, no, no. <laughs> I stay away from the adults, adult animals. Yeah, that were the bears. Also, the bears, even when they were little, they were, they're just so fast. And they've got really sharp teeth. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, but no, this, the sun bears are totally amazing. So I was helping with sun bear outreach a little bit um, and some of their work that they were doing. Um, I was doing communications for them. And I... So yeah, towards the tail end of my time in Indonesia, I oh I also started um, helping on the volunteer committee with um, OFI. So I was helping um, uh, OFI select volunteers for their long term volunteer program, um, which is was a very competitive program, and it was a lot of interviews and just a lot of applicants to go through. So um, I did that for about two years after Indonesia as well. Very cool. So I left Indonesia. I did a little bit more traveling around. Um, I went to India. I went to England, Scotland. May I ask you a question here and interrupt for a second? Most of the work that you're doing is volunteer work at this point, right? That's right. Yeah, I was volunteering. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um... How how are you funding all of this, if you don't mind my asking? Do you have a very supportive family? Are you secretly rich? <laughs> no. No and no. Um, no, my parents did not help me financially with that. And no, yeah, I, I basically just got jobs in between things. So before I went to Indonesia, I was I got a job doing henna tattoos on Clearwater Beach. Nice. <laughs> And I was doing hair wraps on the beach. And um, I I love that this is how you funded these trips. That's just amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My my friends joke that I've had like every job under the sun because before I had before I was working full time, I was just doing basically anything so that I would have the money to do what I wanted to do. Like when I came back from Indonesia, I got a job working at a witch themed cafe. Uh, yeah, and so <laughs> it was attached to like a metaphysical shop. So I was working at the witch themed cafe, and then I got a job at the metaphysical shop, you know, where they had like tarot card readers and psychic readers. So I was, you know, helping set up appointments for them and doing that for a little bit. Yeah, I, basically any job that I could get, you know. So yeah, it was fun. It was actually a really fun time. I, yeah, no, no regrets, but. I, yeah, so I continued, I still stayed involved with OFI when I was um, back in the States. And I should say too, I did get a little bit of money from Sunbear Outreach as well. So I was piecing together an income here from a few different avenues. Um, I was looking for full-time work though in the field and it was so hard. Um, I, when I left Indonesia, I had made a promise to the orangutans and the animals there that I would continue working on behalf of them, that I would never forget them, that it would be my sort of, you know, it would be my compass from that point on my, you know, my North star would always be back to back to them and working on behalf of them and trying to make a difference. So when I came back to the U S I was a bit overwhelmed by that promise. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really know how to make good on it. Um, I got a job doing um, almost at like a corporate type of office doing uh, like it was for international tourism. I was writing articles for the U S government 
advertising the U.S. to international travelers. Um, I did that for about a year, and the entire time I stayed involved with OFI, and I also found out about PASA. So I started shifting to African primates. You know, PASA was kind of small. They just had one staff member at the time, and they were looking for volunteers. So I, you know, contacted the executive director. I said, I'll volunteer. I'd like to volunteer with you, but ultimately I'm looking for a job. And he was like, all right, you know, one step at a time here. Let's see, <laughs> let's see if you can help out. So yeah, I started volunteering with PASA and doing my corporate job and also helping out with OFI in the evenings. And I did that until PASA offered me a job, basically. So uh, I guess I guess the joke was on them in the end. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's actually really funny to me, though. You're just like, "Hey, I'm a, I'm gonna come and work for you. I'll volunteer first, but I'm gonna work for you." And they're like, "Well, we'll see." And you're like, "No, no, we're I got this." Yeah, no, I was very single minded. I mean, it was it was again how I had sort of acted when I was going to Borneo. I was like, "This is I need to make this happen. This is what I want. I don't care how long it takes. Like, this is the job I want." <laughs> So that's awesome. I uh I talk a lot on the podcast about about drive as well. Drive is is everything to me. It's very important and I think um finding your niche and finding finding, you know, being driven, finding your passion, following it is literally everything. So I I think that's very cool. Good for you. Good for you. So let's talk about PASA. Tell me what it is, how it works, all the things. Yeah, yeah I'd love to. Okay, so yeah, so it's the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance. Um, we are the largest alliance of wildlife centers across Africa. We represent 23 member sanctuaries in 13 different countries, um, sub-Saharan Africa. And we're all working together to provide a future for Africa's primates. Um, we've got what we call PASA International, which is our office here in the U.S. So that's you know, who I work for. I work for the Alliance organization. Um, we've got several staff members and volunteers that support um, our organization. And then we have the broader Alliance, which is like the Alliance of all the sanctuaries and wildlife centers that are part of it. So it's kind of a funny setup. You know, we're kind of in, in a way, you know, two things. We are this one organization, but then we're also the Alliance of all the sanctuaries. All right. So how does how how does that work? How tell me how you become a member sanctuary and and how you unite them and and like what tell me more about what this purpose is cuz I will tell you I very purposely came into this one without doing a ton of research or anything because I want you to guide me through it. That way I know that my listeners will understand because if I if I can understand then they can too. So <laughs> Got it. Yeah, so <clears throat> So I guess I can start, it helps to give some background about how we started. So in the year 2000, some primatologists got together and they said, listen, there's all these different sanctuaries that are taking care of primates all across Africa, but they're not really communicating with each other. There's no, um, there, no one's really working together. Let's bring them all to one place that they can, so that they can have a conversation and they can figure out if they want to work together in the future and, you know, how they want that to look. So, yeah, it was the year 2000. They brought these different people together in Uganda and in Tebe, and they had a multi-day meeting, and there was a lot of discuss discussing, you know, 
everyone's issues that they're going through. And, you know, a lot of people were, you know, realized in that meeting that they were facing so many similar battles and they, even if they're in different countries, you know, the issues were so, um, just across the board, very similar that there was a big benefit to, um, joining together and, you know, creating an alliance. And that's how PASA was formed. So it started out in the early days. It was really just sort of what it sounds like, just kind of a, a loose collection of these different sanctuaries and a way for them to communicate with each other, a way for them to share resources. Over time, it grew, you know, um, over many years, you know, eventually PASA became its own organization in the U.S. It you know, became a 501c3. So PASA could accept donations on behalf of the sanctuaries that maybe didn't have, you know, a, a U.S. registered 501c3. And then PASA started accrediting sanctuaries. The sanctuaries decided, hey, we could really, um, we could set up an accreditation system so that we're all meeting, you know, international standards for animal welfare. And we're all kind of um, holding each other accountable and making sure that uh, if a sanctuary is part of the alliance, it's a sustainable organization and that it, you know, has strong practices. So PASA started accrediting sanctuaries. Uh, and, you know, the organization just kind of continued to grow into what it is today, which is now we've got, you know, we're here in the U.S., we've got six staff members, we've got um, a volunteer team of over 50, I think is our latest count, that are located across the world. We've got um, 23 sanctuaries in our alliance. And, you know, we're continuing to kind of expand in a way and even work in countries that we don't have sanctuaries. So we have a lot of different activities and a lot of different things that we do. Um, the best way to think about PASA is that not only are we sort of uniting all of these different sanctuaries together, but we're speaking on behalf of them and elevating their work to um, a global audience and sharing their stories from the field that maybe otherwise people wouldn't hear about, but sharing it uh, with you know people in the U.S. and people in Europe and... Um, just kind of bringing almost a megaphone to the issues that are happening to primates in Africa. And, you know, we really believe in uniting and um, working together, even though maybe people have different values or maybe people have, you know, different opinions about things. And there's a lot of hot button issues and hot topic issues in the conservation world or in the animal welfare world. But PASA very much has a mentality of just working together for sort of uh, the shared goal of protecting and saving primates. So we are, primates is sort of the connective thread between all of the sanctuaries. There are a few sanctuaries that have like a few other animals they take care of, but we are like primarily primates. <laughs> and we've, um, and also a lot of them are chimpanzee sanctuaries. So we have over 3000 primates that are cared for by um, members of our alliance. That includes over a thousand chimpanzees. Uh, that includes all the great apes of Africa as well. So gorillas and bonobos too. And basically all primates in Africa can be cared for at the sanctuaries. And we've got, like I said, a huge team of volunteers that support our work across the world. We've got over 800 staff members that are located in Africa that are working for um, these sanctuaries. So yeah, we're all sort of working together in a way. <laughs> That's really awesome and totally uh, makes sense how it's an alliance. That That's really cool. Yeah. I really, I, I love that. Um, conservation needs uniters. 
Um, I've, I've had some episodes recently where some of the, the dividers of, of conservation, uh, came up in conversation a little bit and it's, it's a real bummer, you know, um, even if there are disagreements about some details, we need to stay united to, to stay on the common mission and, and be there for the animals. Yeah, it's definitely something that's really resonated with me. You know, I think even in my own professional journey, I kind of went into it a bit naively. I didn't realize that people had these different opinions about all the different players. And, you know, you've got the, you know, real strong animal welfare cause or or even maybe animal rights on the one side. And you have people that are sort of staunchly more um, on the conservation level. And in sort of as I was working for these different organizations, I was learning more about the ways that people were dividing and, and, and a lot of infighting and different values. So, and you can't really get around that, you know, I mean, people are going to feel the way they do and um, I can understand a lot of different points, but yeah, PASA's mission is really to sort of unite despite all of that and to just sort of focus on our shared goals and which is that we all want primates to survive um, and be in the wild and they have a right to, to freedom and they have a right to, you know, healthy spaces, you know, healthy, free roaming wild spaces. And, you know, we owe it to them to sort of fight on behalf of that. So yeah, it's really nice actually working for an organization that does really focus on that. And, um, I always feel good too, when we're talking to supporters, because I, I really believe in the cause and I really believe in, the way that the Alliance is working and the work of the sanctuaries. So it resonates with me and I feel like, you know, it sits, it sits good with my moral compass. You know, I feel like we're, sure, we're doing sure. it the, the right way, I guess. That's really cool. That's awesome. I love that. Um, so talk a little bit about what the major threats that primates are facing in the wild in Africa uh, are. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I think there are some that people are familiar with and some that people aren't. So everyone sort of knows about deforestation. Um, I think we are we see that across the globe in so many different areas, and that's no exception in Africa, um, particularly with agriculture, um, with deforestation and um, and development and agriculture. You kind of open up these wild spaces to um, poachers, and you sort of expose otherwise um, hidden, you know, primate or animal populations to. Um, people that might pass through, and particularly to poaching and wildlife trafficking. So bushmeat hunting is a really big problem for primates. That's basically um, hunting primates for their meat. So that can be for um, <clears throat> sustenance hunting, you know, usually like for the smaller monkeys where there's, you know, they might be more common, and all the way to something more um, like a luxury item. So hunting gorillas for their meat or chimpanzees for their meat. And there might be rarer, but it would be considered a luxury item in some places or in some cities. So bushmeat hunting is a really big problem for primates and it's very closely tied in with um, wildlife trafficking. So that, I guess I should back up a little bit too and just explain um, what happens or what this looks like. So when hunters go into the forest, let's say they want to catch chimpanzee and they set up traps they when they catch uh you know a baby chimpanzee or when they catch a chimpanzee they often will kill several of the adults just to get to the baby 
um, or several of the adults will die in the process um, in this confrontation. So that serves two purposes. The baby, uh, the, the adults can be eaten and they can be sort of, yeah, sold for their meats and their body parts. And the babies, which are too small to be eaten, can be sold on the black market as pets. So I hate um, humans. It's really, I know, it's, it's quite dark. It's quite brutal. So the babies are um, often sold into the pet trade, which, I mean, most people aren't aware of that being as big of an issue as it is. It's a huge issue. It's a really big problem, actually. Yeah, I actually had no clue. I mean, I know that existed, but I, I would not have guessed it was such a big thing. Just because they're they're chimps, it's not a that's not that's just not a good idea. Yeah, I know. You would think that, you would think that people would know that, but you know, I I ran into someone um, last week, actually a stranger, but we were making small talk, and she she asked about my job, and um, and she said, "Oh, I've always wanted to get a baby chimp. We were just looking up baby chimps online." But oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what do I say? Um, don't do that. That's a really bad idea. Um, yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's a really big problem. Um, a lot of baby chimps, um, bonobos as well, monkeys too. I mean, and a lot of primates are susceptible to this, but they are the babies are sold into um, the the black market uh, pet trade. So they end up in Dubai or they end up in China or even in the U.S. sometimes and. People see them on YouTube videos and people see them on Instagram. Social media has a huge effect on this, actually, and it's really helped um, wildlife traffickers expand their operations. Um, A lot of these deals are happening on WhatsApp or they're happening through Instagram and people are uh, purchasing chimpanzees, you know, through people, you know, (laughs) through a video that they see on YouTube. You know, I've come across YouTube videos where the title of the video is, you know, one male baby, one female baby, it's for sale. So they are pulled out of the forests in um, in Africa and shipped overseas, of course, illegally. And they end up in the hands of people that don't know how to take care of them. And of course, not good situations, you know. These are also babies that need to be, you know, should be with their mothers and would be on their mother's back, you know, for 24 hours a day or at least in close contact with her. So you have that psychological um, effect that's happening where they've just witnessed their mothers um, dying basically and other members of their family dying. And then they are now thrust into this new world where they're being fed human food. They're, you know, you know, they're in diapers. They're maybe they put makeup on them. They treat them like baby dolls. Mm. And did I, uh, did I mention that I hate, humans sorry go ahead (laughs) no it's really i mean it can get quite dark actually you know when you're sort of involved in this and it's hard too because i get contacted all the time about oh i saw this this video of this chimpanzee or i saw this video of this primate um or people just send things really innocently not realizing that oh hey that's probably a trafficked primate you know (laughs) that's probably a baby that was literally ripped from its mother and um, sold illegally. Yeah. It's, it can be really hard. And there's also this other element where it's like, you know, that these are really intelligent humanoid type beings, you know, I even hate to say intelligent because I hate the, the strata that humans have come up with, with 
you know, who's intelligent, who's not. Um, for I, I feel like they're all intelligent in their own ways. But Sure. No, I totally, I agree. Yeah. But there's something about these like sort of almost humanoid type beings, you know, that are so close to us. They're our closest living relatives. And this is how we treat them, you know. And it, it's had a huge effect on their populations in the wild. So between bush meat hunting um, and illegal wildlife trafficking, you know, illegal wildlife trade is the fourth biggest illegal trade in the world. And Wow. I did not know that. I knew it was bad, but I did not know that. Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> the people also, the, the people that are involved in it are the same people that are involved in, you know, human trafficking, drugs trafficking. You know, if there's money in it, you know, the people that are involved in, you know, guns and ammo, that they're going to be trading in wildlife as well. So uh, for a lot of animals, that means wildlife parts. A lot of animals, that's that's dead animals. But for primates, that's often live animals. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. So, um, not cool, but you know, um, how do you manage to stay? I mean, I've been talking to you for close to an hour now and you're bubbly and you're giggly and you seem happy and driven and not like you want to, um, give up and go crawl into bed and never get out again. So how do you manage to maintain a positive, uh, attitude when you're coming up against all of that crap? You know, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think that is a really important question, too, for the people that work in our field, because, you know, compassion fatigue is a real thing. And so sometimes real. That means, exactly. And sometimes that means um, p- for people that are caring for the animals, that could be, you know, just the, the one-on-one experience of losing, you know, animals that you've worked with for years. Um, in conservation, it can often be w- dealing with some of these bigger issues where you feel almost sort of powerless or you're losing so many battles, you know, uh, for me, I guess I, I guess there's a few different reasons. One of them is that I feel so, you talked about drive earlier. I feel so driven on the inside (laughs) that I almost feel like it's not a choice. Uh, so even though I have days that I feel really, I can feel a bit down about things. I still wake up the next morning, really wanting to keep working at it. I haven't given up. I don't, I don't know where it comes from, but I just feel that way. I feel like I have to do something. I also feel like, you know, it's, there are the people that are in, that work in the field are really my heroes and the, the directors and the founders and the managers at these animal sanctuaries, the caregivers are doing such incredible work and working against every odd, you know, they limited resources and electricity is going out, you know, it's maybe there's corruption in the government or there's, you know, political problems or fightings or wars. And they're just still, they're still going at it. They haven't given up. And I feel like they are really an inspiration to me. And I always, they always kind of push me to go to work harder. So I think, well, I, I'm in the U S you know, I have in many ways, my life is really, really nice. You know, I, can go for bike rides and I have so many freedoms in my life, you know, and I think that always kind of humbles me in a way. And there, I, I should say another thing too, which is that when I first came back from Indonesia, I actually did feel a bit down because I felt like there was so, I just thought, what could I do? You know, what could I really do to, to help with this? And I thought even being able to walk across the room is a freedom that so many 
orangutans or so many animals don't have because they're stuck in cages or on ropes or, you know, somewhere, you know, across the world. But, you know, a friend said to me that there's so much in on the planet and there's so much in in the system of, of our of our lifestyles that's designed to keep us down and designed to sort of keep our heads down and keep us just trotting along and don't push against it. And actually to be happy and to find your own happiness in that is the true rebellion, you know, and sort of to be happy despite it all. And actually the happier that I am or the, the more, you know, healthy I feel, the stronger and more prepared I am to serve in this capacity and to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to help anyone if I'm super depressed, you know, I'm not gonna be able to help any chimpanzees or orangutans, you know? So the stronger that I am and if I'm feeling good, then I'm going to be able to serve them all the better. Makes sense. So um, how do your orangutans feel about the fact that you have ditched them for uh, their African <laughs> counterparts? No, I'm kidding. But how, how are you keeping your promise to your orangutans? Yeah, I, it's really funny you asked that. I, I thought that at first. I thought, oh, gosh, I've, I've, switched, primates and, I've switched sides. I, st- I would like to think that they are still very um, happy and I'm still doing I, – I feel like I'm still doing right by them. And in the years since I've been there, I've really fallen in love with the African primates. I think it's a global cause. You know, I think it's a global issue and it's not so species-specific. So I still feel like I'm doing right by them and I've made good on my promise. Okay. I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just need to make sure somebody's, you know, being the voice of the orangutans here. Don't want them to be. <laughs> I know it. I know it. I know it. No. Gotta, gotta Don't hold tell you them, accountable. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, that's very cool. Um, all right. So all of that was pretty heavy. And obviously that that is why we need conservation. And that's important. But um, I want some joy. So tell me some joyous, wonderful things from PASA. Well, a story that made me really happy recently, and I, please forgive me, I might be messing up the time frame because COVID is real and I don't, I've lost all track of time as we all Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I think it was within the last year, it could have been like maybe over a year ago, but there were two individuals, um, Joanna and Rakita, who were two chimpanzees that were kept in these cages that were, had like... it was like cement on almost every side and the wire front was just like, was this crazy mesh wire front that they had. It was terrible. They were kept in these cages for years and years. Um, There's litter all at the bottom. It was impossible to clean these cages. You know, they were someone's, they were purchased as babies. And then when they got too big, they were put in these weird cages, not even together, actually separated in someone's backyard um, in Cabinda and Angola. And they'd been there for years and years and it was very difficult, but after years of working together, um, Chimpunga, which is uh, Jane Goodall's uh, sanctuary in the Congo, which is also a PASA member, um, worked with PASA and a few other organizations and the government Angola to rescue those two chimpanzees. And to see the, the photos of the rescue and also the video and photos of them now, which is, you know, living in you know, a forest enclosure with others of their kind for the first time in so many years is, was just such an amazing moment. It brought tears to my eyes. And there are, there are countless stories like that where, you know, you know, someone was on a chain for 10 years, you know, there's two chimpanzees in 
Cameroon that were in cages so small they couldn't even stand up that are now living with others of their kind back, you know, in a forest enclosure. I mean, it's, it's, it's just very beautiful. And the sanctuaries are performing miracles like that every day, every single day. That's so, that's so awesome. I just, I love it. I love it. I know. I wish I could show you. I wish I had the pictures here. I could show you because the before and after is really striking. So many lives have been changed from the sanctuaries, you know, and it's not just, I mean, it is often animals that get rescued, you know, but it's also just in the local communities. You know, the sanctuaries have been there for decades and providing work and, you know, livelihoods for the people that are there. Um, education programs, community development programs, they've really become very entrenched in the communities that they work in um, and generating income. So they really, you know, the positive numbers are really just, I see them as like, like making miracles happen <laughs> almost on a daily basis. That's yeah, that's awesome. That that was, I think the thing that has shocked me the most as I've started learning about conservation is just how much you have to impact the communities and people. And I kind of figured it was, you know, the way to take care of things without having to worry about stupid humans. And it turns out that um, the best way to save animals is to educate and to provide money around them, like you said, like employment at a at a sanctuary and stuff. All of that is going to become more valuable to a community than a the pelt of a uh, chimpanzee or whatever. And at that point, it's easier to save them. Yeah, spot on. You know, poverty is a is a real thing that's happening in a lot of these countries. And these communities and these people are living so close to um, critically endangered animals, uh, animals that aren't found anywhere else, really special, special animals. And maybe sometimes the people that live there don't even know that, you know, because they haven't had access to great education. Um, that's, you know, other people in other parts of the world do. So, um, certainly working very closely with the people that are there. You know, I think it's been really important for PASA and also for all the PASA members that um, it's not a situation of just going in and uh, changing people or, or, or telling people how to do things, but rather working within the communities and providing the right types of resources and education that works there for the people that live there. Um, and yeah, also oftentimes providing jobs, you know, like I said, you know, PASA members are employing like nearly 800 people, um, across 13 countries. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. They're, they're providing work, you know, there's, there's scholarship programs that, you know, grants, we bring, um, African staff to our conference every year, uh, that happens, uh, you know, different countries in Africa. So it's certainly also about empowering the people that live there. Um, and, getting making sure everyone's on board and it's it's not just a western you know <laughs> idea of what works but it's a it's something that works in Africa you know promoting african leadership at the sanctuaries is also really important to pasa and we have a um just plug our <laughs> leadership development grant that we provide for um different employees that work at pasa member organizations so there's people that are rising up in leadership at the sanctuaries as well 
Very cool. Now, I have had two zookeepers already on this podcast who volunteer for PASA and just praise you guys up and down. Uh, Tiffany James at Knoxville and uh, Melissa Peterson at Memphis. Uh, What is your relationship like with zoos? Oh, yeah, we've got a really good relationship with zoos, actually, and zookeepers as well. Zoos have been big supporters of PASA um, and the like the AZAC chapters. So they have helped us fund a lot of different projects. I mean, we had a um, grant from um, just recently SeaWorld Bush Gardens um, in Greenville Zoo, I believe, that was uh, made a new uh, children's book possible for um, sanctuary in actually it's for several sanctuaries, but the story is about a caregiver, uh, Mama Pose, who works at Takugama uh, Chimpanzee Sanctuary in Sierra Leone. And we wanted to make a children's book that really highlighted the people that work at the sanctuary. So, and she's got an amazing story. So this is a book about her and it's also, you know, a woman in a leadership role at the sanctuaries. And so we, you know, those zoos helped make that possible. And we are printing that in multiple different countries and that'll be shared with you know African students across you know multiple countries so that's really cool um we've gotten a lot of different support through grants and yeah like I said the Azac chapters the, uh, zoos Victoria uh, made it possible for um our member sanctuary in DRC Luero to uh, start their sustainable coffee production program which impacts you know thousands of families that are in DR Congo and is providing like an alternative livelihood for the people there. So, and also because you mentioned it, we do have several volunteers that are uh, work at zoos and help um, in various ways. We've got people that are helping in grant writing. We've got uh, zookeepers that have helped with our social media before um, helped with donor management. So yeah, we work people. We work with people sort of in a lot of different um, facets and a lot of different um, parts of conservation and animal welfare globally. Very cool. And um, you just you just mentioned coffee, and I'm a coffee <laughs> addict. Um, what what talk to me about coffee and, and primates? Oh, yeah. Well, that's just a program that's happening with Luiro. So Luiro is a primate sanctuary in the DR Congo. Um, So that's an example of a uh, grant that was provided by Zoos Victoria to allow um, Luiro to start a coffee production um, project uh, right there locally in the village. And that's for um, helping the local women uh, with an alternative livelihood. They can start growing coffee and selling coffee so that, yeah, just provide sort of alternative income instead of people, um, you know, abusing critical wildlife habitat. <laughs> it's a very important uh, mission of many of our sanctuaries is to sort of diversify the opportunities that are available at some of these, in some of these villages and more remote areas. Um, yeah, so it's just just an example of, of, of one of the ways that the, the sanctuaries is involved in um, yeah, uh, allowing women more work opportunities and, um, yeah, alternative sources of income. That's the kind of out-of-the-box out thinking that I just love when it comes to conservation. Like, yeah. if you would have told me that making coffee, you know, 
could could help save wildlife. Um, I I don't know that I would have bought that before I started doing all of this. Right? I don't know how that I could have seen the connection, but that is so cool. Not to mention that it makes coffee, which is obviously just very important. It's very important. Yeah, it reminds me of this. We just had a webinar with Ian Redmond, um, who's a very prominent conservationist, but he was just talking in this webinar about how in the future he thinks that there will be more of a push to um, to put a, a price point on the types of services that animals and, and trees and plants are providing to the planet or to the community um, and actually putting a price point on that and showing people, you know, how much value, financial value that a bird or a chimpanzee can provide, excuse me, can provide a community. So I loved that idea too when he mentioned it. Like, yeah, there is a financial benefit to this. We just have to sort of identify it and let other people know because, yeah, unfortunately money does in many ways run the world. So. No, absolutely. Um, and I think that's um, – I just, uh, as we're interviewing, yesterday I released an episode with a conservation biologist, uh, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, who uh, runs the Rewildology podcast. And um, that was something that she said that they do when it comes to conservation travel. Um, she, they, they literally will sit down with people and say, you know, you have this tiger in your village and you could, you could kill it and, and earn this amount of money, yes, or – People will come and see it and you will earn this amount sustained every year for the, you know, 20 years that it has left. And if it has cubs, more people may come and see them. And, you know, and by educating people directly on the value of those animals, um, they, they can learn that, you know, poaching it would not be beneficial financially. Because you're right. When one of the hardest things I think about making a conservation message to Americans and Canadians and, and anybody who is, is really comfortable um, financially. And I, when I'm talking comfortable financially, I mean, you know, roof over your head and can eat most of your meals. I'm not talking wealthy. I'm not talking middle class. I'm talking, uh, you know, there is poverty in places in these villages in, in Nepal and Africa that is unlike what we picture in this country. And until you can understand that, you can't really understand, you know, why people would kill these amazing animals. Um, but when it's, it's yes. that or your family won't eat for a month, it's, it's a harder choice to make, you know? Um, and so I, I do think that putting a, a financial uh, a price tag on animals is as much as I hate to phrase it that way actually makes a lot of sense and, and enriching lives of people around those animals in other ways and showing that they being alive, uh, creates a more sustainable and a, a healthier and a better situation for the people than a dead animal is, is incredibly important. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the member sanctuaries have embraced, um, ecotourism, it's not always possible because they are, some of them are quite remote or in countries that maybe don't get a lot of tourists, uh, like the Gambia, <laughs> for example. Um, but, you know, we have like we have a sanctuary, um, Takugama, that's in Sierra Leone. Now, previously, people would not think of going to Sierra Leone because it was too dangerous. But, you know, in recent years, it's actually become a really cool place to visit and Takugama is located really close, nearly in the city. So, I mean, they're, it's a forest, but they're, they're right next to the city. So they've been providing, I mean, this is pre-COVID, but they were providing um, 
yeah, you know, housing for travelers. People could stay there overnight. There was yoga programs. There's hiking in the park. And it's a way also for them to see these chimpanzees that are being rehabilitated, um, um, hopefully to be released back to the wild. So it, it was a way of, of it had multi, multiple purposes, which is that not only could people come and see chimpanzees and learn about chimpanzees um, and support the sanctuary, but in, they could also learn about Sierra Leone's natural heritage. Uh, it's also a way of bringing travelers to Sierra Leone who might otherwise not go there. You know, this is they could stay at a chimpanzee sanctuary. It's a really cool kind of symbiotic relationship between the sanctuary and the city of Freetown and um, yeah, and the country, too. So it brings in tourists. It brings in travelers. It helps educate people about the importance of chimpanzees and of the importance of the forest um, and, you know, an organization that's run by Sierra Leoneans. So, yeah, that is really, really cool. I love it. So tell me this, now that you have not been able to travel so much because of COVID and, uh, and you're in Florida and everything, um, what are you doing to make sure that you get your animal time? <laughs> That's a really good question. I, so I've always had a long history with horses and donkeys. I just, I love them. <laughs> I mean, I have my cats. I have, you know, I have the animals that I'm with all the time, but, um, I've started volunteering at, um, a barn up the road. So I like being able to have some sort of contact with animals and we don't have any, uh, you know, wild, you know, monkeys or primates here. So yeah, I've gotten involved a little bit with just some, um, horse care and it, it kind of, it kind of, uh, fills that hole a little bit, you know, the daily care and just being around them. I do have many fond memories though, of the times that I got to you know, either live at sanctuaries or just live kind of out in the woods and you were so much closer to them. So I do try and incorporate that because otherwise I'm just on the computer most of the time. Well, yeah, that's, that's why I asked. It seems like that would be an important thing for you. So totally. Yeah. I'm glad you're getting some of that. That's good. Good, good. Yeah. All right. So I think it is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Ron Safari Poop Story. Hit me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, the first story I have, I again, I feel like someone mentioned this on one of your podcasts where they're like, a, a keeper would have a way worse story. <laughs> this is not that bad because I'm not a keeper. I'm sure like most keepers have much more extreme stories, but... I think it was the it was just sort of shocking for me because it was the first time I'd been around this. But when I was at Center for Great Apes, I was there. I swear it had been like two days, like three days. You know, I was cleaning up, and Mari, who's an orangutan who has no arms actually, she had this blanket that was like a pea-soaked blanket, like absolutely sopping. You know. And I was just dropping her food off in the, and you put it in the chute, you know, you're far away. And I don't know if she did this in per maybe she did this in, like on purpose because I was so new, but she just picked up her, with her foot, she picked up her sopping wet blanket, just covered in pee and just flung it out like into the <laughs> void, you know? And it just, this stream of urine just went right across <laughs> my face, in my mouth, in my <laughs> eye. And I was, I, yeah, directly into it, just a straight line. And I was so 
shocked because again I had just started and I was too embarrassed. I was too embarrassed oh, no. to tell anyone. Oh no. Because I was yeah yeah, I was too embarrassed. I didn't want to tell them. So I went into the shed where we have like food stuff there and I'm I'm like at the sink trying to wash this out and someone said, Did something happen? I said, Oh I'm fine. I just like got something in my eye. <laughs> and they said, Oh, you should use this like this water distill thing. We have distilled water that you can clean your flush your eye out. You know, it's like an eye flushing thing. Obviously, of course they have this. Uh, okay, okay, I'll do this. I still haven't told them what was in my eye, you know, which was like a lot of Mari's urine. And so I went and flushed my eyes with the distilled water. And I'm thinking, okay, that's good, you know. And I turn around and she says, oh my gosh, what what's happened? And I look in the mirror and my skin had some sort of reaction oh. to the... To the distilled, I don't know what, to this distilled water, to the urine, right around my eyes, like sunglasses, was deep red, oh. like a deep, deep, like a darker than sunburn red, all oh, across no. my eyes, like a band. I looked insane. It was like crazy. <laughs> and as as if that wasn't enough, it just stayed there. And I, I felt fine. But I'm like, oh my gosh. And I don't want to tell her, well, it was urine and... I don't know. It didn't. It got in my mouth too. I'll be honest. <laughs> and it was. I. I think it was like five minutes after that that the founder of the sanctuary comes down in her golf cart and just sort of. I'm trying to sort of like look down, you know. <laughs> so my my face is like raccoon eyes, like this red thing, and I didn't know how to explain to anyone. And then I've got this like weird skin reaction happening. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah so that was like the less gross story the other gross story i was gonna share again it's not about poop but it was one of the grosser things i've ever had to deal with with animals which was when i worked at i had an externship at the at crow uh, which is a wildlife rehab clinic in florida we were in possum season which means that we had like over 100 baby possums that we had to tube feed um, which is in and of itself like a full-time job. Like that's all you do all day. You just rotate around tube feeding baby possums. And these little guys, I felt so bad for them because, you know, you have to like stick a little tube in there and their hands are so dexterous and they're always trying to take the tube out, you know, and I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, I'm trying to shove this little <laughs> tube down there. But there were so many of them. So the vet had this idea, like we should try, you know, it, once they're big enough, once they're done with the tube, they're they're ready for like chopped up baby chopped up mice basically to eat. And it was taking so long to chop up all these mice, and they thought, oh well, why don't you try making a slurry? So there was a time, there was about a week there, where it was an experiment. We were making a mouse slurry. This was the grossest thing I've ever done. It was, you know, you get these frozen mice and you have to defrost them, and they're floating in the water, you know, so there's like this sopping wet, like warm pile of dead mice and then you have to hand skin them one by one like literally like just tearing their skin open with your hands and then their little bodies you put in a blender and with some liquid vitamin stuff <laughs> and freaking blend it up dude and their little hand would be it was really disturbing, <laughs> but like you'd blend and with like and there would be like one singular hand sticking up out of the mouse slurry <laughs> thing and you know we're giving this to the but you'd think oh at least the possums are loving it 
but they did not like it at all. It was just, it was all for nothing. Yeah. They, we had to go back to just cutting mice up because they were like, this is disgusting, guys. I want to eat this. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Mouse slurry will scar you for life, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would imagine so. I would imagine so. That's, that's awesome. Also, I love that we've gone this whole interview with no indication of the fact that you are from, you know, Philadelphia until the oh. poop story when you start talking about the water that you had to deal with. And <laughs> That's there right. it is. <laughs> yeah, I have a weird holdover in my accent where it's like everything else left, but I still say water. Yeah, you I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun. Are you guys jealous that I get to spend all this time talking to all these cool humans? Because sometimes I, I'm almost jealous of myself. I just, I cannot believe how awesome all of the people that I get to talk to are. And Caitlin was just such an amazing, cool spirit. I, I love the ingenuity and how she got to do her travel. I love the, the push and the dedication that she just knew she was going to get this job that didn't even exist when she decided that. Um, and I just, I love all the stuff that PASA is doing. What an amazing organization, right? This is so cool. So uh, yeah, you can check them out online at pasa.org, and they are on Instagram at pasa primates. Remember, in Indonesian, the word for credits is credits, but with a K. So here are the credits with a K. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.